Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. So, some sad news this week, Wendy. Oh, man. Very sad. Especially for for people of our generation. Yes. We lost another good one. Chris Cornell passing away, was it Wednesday night, of uh, hanging himself. <sighs> which And he was only 52, which is crazy, because that means that he did all that great Soundgarden work just in his mid-20s. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah. And so in the newsletter, we talked about it. We put even put the... Um, we linked to the song Super Unknown because that's kind of a paranormal theme, alive in the super unknown. And uh, we hope Chris Cornell is still. Uh, what was your favorite Soundgarden song, Wendy? Uh, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> I can't pick a favorite one. But I'm glad that we got to see them in 1996 at Lollapalooza. We did get to see them at Lollapalooza in 1996. They co-headlined Lollapalooza with Metallica. Yeah, and it was incredible. Yeah, it was a that was a, a massive day because like the Ramones played that day, Rancid played that day, Metallica, Soundgarden, and yeah, I'm I'm certain we've talked about it before on here because it was just such an epic. Right, <laughs> event. I uh, I was hoping that Cheap Trick would play, but it ended up being Waylon Jennings instead. Oh. Uh, ben Folds played, but uh, Soundgarden closed out. I think the yeah Soundgarden closed out the night that night, or did Metallica? I don't remember, but I do. Metallica did. Metallica did. But uh, I do remember it was lucky. I felt lucky to see Soundgarden because they broke up the next year. And so that was depressing because Soundgarden was one of my favorites. My favorite Soundgarden song is Rusty Cage. Okay. Because I think it's got the sweetest uh, guitar riff from Kim Thale. And then uh, Chris Cornell goes hog wild on it (laughs) with the singing. So Soundgarden had reunited and they were on tour. And the last song, and this is kind of, uh, well, it's sad but also ominous. Uh, the last song that they did was a cover of Led Zeppelin's In My Time of Dying. Hmm. And uh, it's the longest Led Zeppelin studio track. It goes over 11 minutes long. Wow. You know, and it's, it's kind of a, a dark song because Led Zeppelin actually recorded it. They were updating a old spiritual song called Jesus Make Up My Dying Bed. Hmm. That sounds like a... A real party starter. <laughs> right. And, you know, some of the lyrics that Jesus make up my dying bed are hanging there in misery. Ah, ah, hanging there in misery. Jesus going to make up my, you know, dying bed. I'm dead and buried. Somebody said that I was lost. When I get down to Jordan, have to bear my body across. And uh, it's just a really sad song. And uh, it seems almost, not, I mean, ominous that that's, that's the song that Chris Cornell decided to sing before he took his own life. So it's very sad. Chris Cornell, wherever you are in the super unknown, we hope you're uh, in a better place and happier. Um, I love Soundgarden's music. And so, and I think a lot, a lot of people of our generation were, are upset about that because there's not that many singers left. Right. It's so tragic because he was able to hold on and recover yeah. from some of the dark demons, it seemed. <laughs> and he, had a really successful career, you know, and he had a family and 
he seemed to be doing great. And they were still but. successful as compared to like, so Soundgarden releases stuff. He did a James Bond song from the 2006 Casino Royale soundtrack. Like he does a song, yeah. You Know My Name. So he has that. The reunited Soundgarden, their uh, song was the lead single from the Avengers movie. Like that was mm-hmm. their song in the soundtrack. So like, I mean, compared to even, you know, Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins, which are like the two band, like the two really popular grunge bands whose singers are still alive. Soundgarden seemed the most vital. Yeah. So the least chance of uh, somebody taking their own life. So anyway, Chris Cornell singing the, you know, a an old Led Zeppelin update of a spiritual kind of spooky way to go. So I hope. Very sad. Yeah, it is very sad. And that sucks for the rest of the band, too, because they, you know, like their whole livelihoods and stuff and his family and. Uh, yeah. Just it's unreal. Yeah. So that that was the sad news this week, uh, as far as when it comes to the kind of music that we love <laughs> and I used mm. to listen to. Um, let's do something more cheerful, though. All right, I like that thought. And we've got a five star review. <gasps> well, that's wonderful. Yes. So something more cheerful is a five star review from R W T X R H Robert May nineteenth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, thumbs up, five stars. Just getting started and gonna get a cut up. Thanks for the heads up, Mike. All right. No problem. Because I'm looking at your username here, I, I have no idea who you are, but I do uh, think you're awesome and uh, definitely thumbs up to you and thank you for checking out the podcast. Yeah, thanks. If you guys would like your review left on the air, you just have to stop by our iTunes page. See you on the other side. We have ratings and reviews. Leave a five-star rating and uh, let us know what you thought about the podcast and then we will read that on the air. And sometimes we even make little songs for the five-star review and you could be part of that. Yes. Well, I tell you what, thinking about Chris Cornell a lot this week, it didn't make it any easier to live through the rest of the 90s nostalgia that was happening for me this week. Ah. And it really is because of the Twin Peaks revival that started this weekend. Indeed. And big time revival. Yeah, big time revival. And that to me is really 90s nostalgia. So much so when I was watching the old episodes, I felt kind of sad. And just because I was like, holy cow, because I really haven't watched these episodes since they were on in 1990. And I can remember the night that it was on. So I was like in seventh grade and this would be spring of seventh grade. I still played cello at the time. And I I started watching five minutes late because I had to put in my 15 minutes of cello rehearsals practice. Uh. (laughs) And I started at 7.50 and I knew I wanted to watch the show because it was... uh, because I knew I liked David Lynch. And so I started at 7.50, so I got five minutes late. They'd already discovered Laura Palmer's body oh, by man. the time I'd come up. And I knew I liked David Lynch because the year before I'd seen Dune for the first time. And Dune is a really great Frank Herbert novel from the 60s. And from the success of Star Wars, these producers thought that they had a new franchise in making a film version of Dune. Their mistake was hiring David Lynch. Because he was just too weird for and, and doing mm-hmm. it's a pretty weird movie. And that that's why I thought it was awesome. You know, I saw it when I was twelve and it kind of it, it blew my mind. And it was funny that George Lucas asks David Lynch to direct Return of the Jedi. And I can't imagine what his version of Return of the Jedi would be. Like oh, yeah. 
you know, it would just be like a, you know, like a four minute shot on like Jabba's palace and like weird <laughs> things happening in Jabba's palace and uncomfortable silences between like Han and Leia, you right. know, he's just such an interesting choice. But so he, he directs the elephant man and the elephant man is probably his most, well, mainstream-ish or Hollywoodish movie. So he's, so David Lynch in the 1970s, he spends five years working on this movie called Eraserhead. And that's like his, it starts as his student project. And uh, Eraserhead is like, it's about like this reptilian baby. And mm. the father of the reptilian baby has crazy hair. And if the people that know out there who haven't seen Eraserhead, they've probably seen the poster. And the poster is just this guy with like a, a really high, like flat top, kind of crazy looking hair, and it's bl- awesome. it's black and white. It's got a lot of the imagery, the zigzag patterns that eventually show up in in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, they make their debut in Eraserhead. Ah, oh. and okay. um, it just took him like four to five years to to make the movie, and then it you know it doesn't make any money, but it's so weird and surreal that people start watching it at midnight in movie theaters. So it takes its place among, you know, films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Night of Cult Following. Yep, and Night of the Living Dead, uh, where people they get revived and people would go and watch them at midnight on Saturday night at the movie theater. So then, he, because of the success, the midnight movie success of Eraserhead, he gets a chance to direct The Elephant Man, which ends up being produced by Mel Brooks. Right. You That's a big one. Yeah, you don't think that Mel Brooks is going to make something as serious <laughs> as The Elephant oh, Man. Yeah. But that's so he's the producer of The Elephant Man. And The Elephant Man gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Mm-hmm. And it's super successful. And then David Lynch becomes really hot. And so that's when George Lucas is like, you should direct Return of the Jedi. Uh. And David Lynch turns him down because he says to George Lucas that Star Wars is his vision. So he should be the one oh. to, to handle the direction. Okay. And this is kind of a theme of David Lynch's career, where if he's not feeling something, he just won't do it. You know, so this director, he has to love a project in order to do it. He gets a chance to do Dune, and it's really an artful, beautiful film. And I think it's great. A lot of people think it's just, it's a little too weird for them, or not enough action happens. But I was enchanted when I saw oh. it, when I saw Dune, and the star of Dune is Kyle MacLachlan. So that's where let's so Kyle MacLachlan's twenty four. Uh, I think David Lynch is maybe thirty seven. I think when he makes Dune, and they form this relationship of then um, David Lynch wants Kyle MacLachlan in all his films. So even though Dune becomes a commercial failure, it's still an interesting film, and he moves on to direct a movie called Blue Velvet. He hires Kyle MacLachlan to be the star of Blue Velvet. And Blue Velvet is all about the uh, kind of the hidden darkness in the small t- in small town America. Okay, so what that that's shades of Twin Peaks right there. The 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 hidden darkness behind s- small town America. And, and he hires Kyle McLachlan and that movie becomes really successful as well. So then he starts getting offers to do TV. And that's when Twin Peaks comes about. So in the late 80s, he's working to try to find some kind of TV show that he can make. And he's really enchanted with this idea of the hidden darkness in small town America. And like what lies below the surface of this idyllic um, 
because you know because kind of it in our in our generation I think we don't see I mean we see small towns as maybe the suburban existence as like soul crushing and small towns as boring and I I think maybe maybe it's just me but you always think of city life as the well you know we're yearning for some kind of of, of city life or urban life and like in the 70s and 80s you know the crime wave was at its height and if you look at movies made in New York and Los Angeles in the 70s they'd make it look like a criminal cesspool okay and the idea was that you know people were leaving the cities to move to smaller towns and where they could find this leave it to beaver existence you know like the people that grew up in the 50s uh, but like David Lynch, you know, you, you have that leave it to beaver existence. And so he's really interested in saying, well, you know, small towns, may, they might look idyllic, but beneath it, there's an evil that is lurking there. And that's kind of what how, you know, he wanted to make Twin Peaks was because of kinda that. like American Beauty, huh? Yeah, a little bit like that. Like, you know, American Beauty, the picture perfect couple, you know, the idea... Um, if you guys haven't seen American Beauty, it's a movie that came out in 1999. Sam Mendes was the director. It's got, oh, who's the House of Cards guy? Why is it escaping me? Kevin Spacey. Kevin oh, yeah. Spacey, Annette Benning. They're a successful couple with uh, their kids and in this, you know, they're living this perfect existence, but underneath they're kind of dying. And it's the same kind of idea that underneath this beautiful existence, there's there's a darkness, there's a there's a rotting uh, corpse <laughs> behind the beautiful people, and uh, that's kind of where they're getting at the idea of Twin Peaks. And David Lynch is from the Northwest; he's raised in Missoula, Montana. Kyle McLachlan's from Yakima, Washington, so they're both from the Northwest. And uh, he starts writing with a guy named Mark Frost, who is a writer on Hill Street Blues. So you, you have David Lynch, who's this very surreal type of director who creates very weird things. And you've got Mark Frost, who's working on Hill Street Blues. Which, very practical. Right, very practical. And, and someone who was, uh, I mean, Hill Street Blues was hailed as a more realistic type of police drama than what we had at the time. There weren't like any cops like punching people out or it wasn't, you know, action that was resolved in the very next episode. Yeah. So you take the most surreal, craziest di- auteur director you can find, and you team him up with somebody who's known for making like a hyper-realistic police drama, and put together, they start writing Twin Peaks together in the late 80s. They call it Northwest Passage, is the original name of it. And they start working together. Now, I can remember watching the show, the first episode, I remember watching it with my dad in you know April of 1990. And I, th- I believe my first reaction was I was so interested in the mystery. Now, I appreciated the comedy of it, like the weird characters. Yeah. And I liked how unusual some of the directorial choices were. I, I enjoyed how unusual. And so on Friday, I wanted to watch the pilot again. And even though I owned the pilot on video, I hadn't watched it since it was on. Wow. So, so you just bought the video just to, to have it as a... Santa left it under the tree. Oh, okay. So I got the video because Santa left it under that tree when I was like in eighth grade. But I never, I, I had it, but I never watched it. 
And I also watched the European, and we'll get to that in a second. So Wendy, now you just watched the pilot for the first time, right? Yeah, I remember when it came out and everything, but I just never got into it. Uh, I didn't watch it when it was on TV. But in college, my roommate and our good friend, Erica, had (laughs) the entire series on VHS. And I remember because she had like a little library system where Mm -hmm. people could, people on our dorm floor could come and check out videos. (laughs) But it was funny because I watched the pilot and I actually got reeled in and I ended up watching like the first four episodes. Right away. Because it was great. But hearing the music just brought me back to college because I, because she watched it frequently. So just hearing that opening music mm-hmm. was like a little nostalgia. Yeah, exactly. All right. And the, the music was great. Like that, I think the idea was there was nothing on TV like it at the time. And, and so that's what I was wondering. So as somebody who has seen all of the shows that Twin Peaks has influenced over the years, you know, from Mad Men to The Sopranos to all of the, you know, like all the big series, X-Files even, and, and you've seen a lot of those series. So that's what I was kind of wondering. As, as somebody who's watched the, the episodes that have influenced Twit Peaks, like what was your first take on seeing something, you know, that's, that's 27 years old now? Well, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it, first of all, just because I found the characters interesting. And then, of course, the mystery and mm-hmm. uh, just more, more and more questions popping up with each episode, but uh, really the quirkiness and the weirdness of the characters trying to imagine it at the time that it came out. Mm -hmm. It seems like with everything else that was on at that time, like it would have been not a popular thing, you know, because it seems extra weird. Oh yeah. And in that respect, (laughs) it was definitely extra because it was like an art film on television. Yeah. We started watching it, me and my dad, because we really liked the mystery and thought it was really cool. And also appreciated the, the the weird humor. How, you know, Andy, the sheriff's deputy, is openly weeping when he finds the right. body. And then the, the receptionist lady who just over-describes everything. Right. She's hilarious. But yeah, a lot of the characters just are so strange and unique. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot of what people remember. When people think about it, they remember that that's a damn fine cup of coffee. They remember <laughs> talking about the cherry pie. They remember the quirkinesses of the characters. They remember the log lady. We'll talk about the log lady right. in a second. They remember the dream sequences. And that's really one, you know, you didn't have dream sequences like Twin Peaks. That was something that like nobody had ever seen before. Those dream sequences like blew everybody's mind. And so that's what I'm talking about, influences. So like Mad Men had like a dream sequence where, remember Burt Cooper. He was the old guy that worked at the ad agency in Mad Men. He made people take yeah. take off their shoes. Yep. Right? And they have that scene where he's playing the piano, like, after he dies. Like, he plays piano and sings a whole song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, oh, sad. That would not have happened without Twin Peaks. Oh, interesting. Um, Sopranos had, like, a 17-minute dream sequence, I think, in the wow. sixth season. That kind of thing. Their entire Tony Soprano in the sixth season, when he's in, like, Purgatory... That's completely like that would not have happened without Twin Peaks. So that the part of the fun is seeing that it made it safe for these guys to make daring kind of uh, choices and scenes in their work because of what David Lynch and Mark Frost did uh, in the early 1990s. And before we get to some of the paranormal aspects of it, and because I always think of Twin Peaks as a paranormal show, obviously, but I didn't realize the extent of influences that it has. Like it, it is the mother load. Of paranormal influences. And I never realized that either until I started looking into it for this episode here. 
and watching it. You know, I just always thought of it as a murder mystery. Right. Well, and that's the thing. So 35 million people watch the premiere. So ABC makes David Lynch and Mark Frost write a separate ending. So they knew they were taking a gamble, but it makes them it makes them write an ending that kind of resolves the plot so they can release it in Europe as a film. And it's funny that like they knew they were taking a gamble, but then 35 million people watched the premiere episode. So it's huge. Uh-huh. It just, I mean, nothing gets 35 million anymore yeah. besides the Super Bowl, maybe the Academy Awards and things like that. <laughs> so, the, you know, it's considered a, a really big success at the time. But today it would be like the most popular show in the past 10 years if that many people watched it. Because at the time, there's still only three major networks, like Fox was just coming onto its own. It's still like Fox was still kind of a, I think the Simpsons were six months old at that point. At least. <laughs> and that was their breakout success. Because I remember in seventh grade, we had our Simpsons t-shirts banned. You know, you couldn't wear, oh you gosh. couldn't wear Bart Simpson t-shirts to school because it would cause too much of a ruckus. Like the worst, <laughs> the worst thing you said was don't have a cow, man. Or I'm Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you? Right. Right, so you can't wear your Simpsons t-shirts. Anyway, so that, speaking of nostalgia. And so it was funny. So I'm watching that first episode and listening to the music and everything. And it takes me back. I was like, oh, my God, you know, to what, 13 years. Like the, the blossoming of my adult sentience yeah. is very tied into this program. Okay, so it becomes a huge hit. And then it, it runs for eight episodes the first season. So it goes for eight episodes. And then they renew it in, in the fall. And ABC makes David Lynch and Mark Frost resolve the murder of Laura Palmer. No. Yeah, they say you have to resolve the murder. So they do it in this, like the seventh episode of the second season. And they really don't know what to do after that. Like they just, they don't know what to do with the story. Um, oh man, bummer. Yeah, and so even, I mean, even David Lynch is like, I, I think the second season's pretty good because it gets more paranormal. But even David Lynch is like, yeah, the second season kind of sucks. Aww. It kind of goes up the rails and then people lose interest in it. So it goes from being the huge hit where there's a there, the secret diary of Laura Palmer written by David Lynch's daughter, even that becomes a bestseller. Wow. Um, you know, the tapes that Agent Cooper made to Diane, you know, he's always talking in a tape recorder to this, you oh, know, right. this Diane person. You assume it's a secretary at the FBI headquarters. Don't spoil it for me, though. Okay, well, it's going to be hard <laughs> not to spoil things in this conversation today. Oh, no. I know, that's just... I apologize, but to get to the paranormal stuff, we're going to have to talk about what happened. I have my theories, though. But Well, your theories are not going to be as weird as the truth. Um, and, that's just, and that's just how it rolls. But so, like, they released the tapes, like Agent Cooper's tapes to Diane. Cool. The soundtrack becomes popular. Like, it just, it, it's like a, a phenomenon, like a really a pop culture phenomenon. And then it just gets too weird for everybody. And like I stuck around, my dad stuck around, and then it gets canceled in the second season. Mm. So that's it. And it gets canceled on a huge cliffhanger. Man, that's cruel. Right. David Lynch gets some money from this French company that says you can make a Twin Peaks movie. So we think we're going to get a Twin Peaks sequel and it's going to resolve the cliffhanger. Yeah. Okay. Instead, he makes a prequel with the last, the prequel is the last days of Laura Palmer. And we'll talk more about that in a minute too, because that's mystical as heck. And he releases it, and it's definitely not for TV because there's a ton of sex, ton of drugs, ton of nudity, like swears. It's a whole deal. And, it, I mean, and it's great. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also really shocking for people, especially people that thought they were going to get, uh, you know, the TV version of the show. 
And they thought they were going to get answers to all of their stuff, and they don't. And so people hate it. Like, it plays at the Cannes Film Festival, and it gets booed. Oh, wow, that's hard. Yeah. Um, Oh, man. And the film is so surreal that it bombs at the U.S. box office. David Lynch is angry about it, becomes bitter at Twin Peaks fans for like a decade. You know, and and just how we didn't expect it, what kind of movie it was going to be. I go to see it with my parents. My mother gets preview tickets for it, right? So we get like Twin Peaks t-shirts and I'm all excited. And so we take my friend Brett, who I'd known since kindergarten, and my parents know his parents and everything. And Brett was a big fan as well. And so we go to the movie and the movie is like all sex and violence and nudity. And my mother in the middle of it, she... And I'm sitting next to my mother, and Brett's on the other side, and my dad's on the other side, my mom. And I hear my mother in the middle of the film, like, whispering to my father, I can't believe we took Jones Boy to this film. Aww. And she's humiliated because it's so raunchy. And, uh, and we're loving it. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, it's really weird, but as a, this is 1992, so you get a couple of 15-year-old boys. Right. You know. Life can't get any better. Right. And we're like, this is awesome. Okay. So what happens is... Now they are resolving the mysteries 25 years later with the Showtime sequel. Yay! And I've watched the first four episodes because they're all available for streaming on Showtime, the first four episodes. You've been busy, Mike. Yeah, I've watched them since last night because they debuted at 8 o'clock last night. You can start streaming them. And then I streamed them since. Um, And it goes full supernatural and full weird. So like all Mm -hmm. all of the stuff, the charming stuff, that you enjoyed, like the quirkiness and everything. Yeah. There's a little bit of that, um, but it's it's full mystery, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the places. Now, I'm not gonna spoil it for anybody. Yeah, uh, that it's too weird. Number one, it's too weird to spoil. So, like, if I tried to explain it, you'd be like, I don't. Yeah, you you just have to watch it. You're gonna have to watch it, but we're gonna okay. talk a little bit about it, and we're gonna talk a little bit about the paranormal influences. And I just want to give the history and my personal relationship with the show because I I have had a lifelong relationship with this program, and I really enjoy it. And, and still in, in the research, I've learned a ton of things about the show I didn't, like mm. the initial inspiration behind the murderer Laura Palmer. So um, in the show, I mean, obviously. The, the central mystery is this 17-year-old, like, prom queen or homecoming queen, popular girl. She's a tutor. You know, she tutors a disabled student. She works for Meals on Wheels. She's this, you know... Stand-up citizen. Quote-unquote, perfect little girl. She's got a, her boyfriends, the captain of the football team kind of right. thing. She's very pretty. Yep. And, uh, I mean, it's like her prom picture is that famous picture of Laura Palmer that they show at the end of every episode. With the crown. <laughs> right. And so, and that's the thing. So it's based on, so Mark Frost grew up in New York and he would go visit uh, the town of Sand Lake. It's a resort community in upstate New York. And he'd go there over the summers. And his grandmother would tell him this ghost story about this girl named Hazel Drew who was murdered in the forest, and sometimes you would see her ghost. So uh, this is uh, online. They talk about the murder that inspired the show. Um, July 7th, 1908, 20-year-old Hazel Irene Drew is walking along a remote section of Taberton Road, heavily wooded, a stretch by Teal's Pond, popular with squirrel hunters, campers, and fishermen. But a young woman walking alone, it's a dangerous place. Mm. 
she's seen by a, a dim-witted farmhand named Frank Smith. That's dim-witted is like the, the word they use in the newspaper. So I'm not just, <laughs> it's the early 20th century, 1908. They're, I mean, there's, I mean, the term idiot was like, was on the scale of the IQ test originally. So idiot, moron, they're still using words like that. Like wow. we don't use the term dimwit much, but they, they do in 1908. Um, they said that the farmhand kind of fancied her. You know, she sees him on the road along with this, a charcoal peddler <laughs> named Rudolf Gundrum. She sees them, has a quick conversation and their wagon moves on and she walks in continuing down the road near the forest. And that's the last anybody ever sees of her. And this is mm. July 1908. Her lifeless and bloated body is discovered floating face down in Teal's Pond four days later. Mm. Cause of death, a blow to the back of the head, her skull crushed with a blunt, unknown weapon. The water had distorted Hazel's features so beyond recognition that she could be identified only by her clothes and the gold filings in her teeth. Oh, wow. The mystery is still unsolved. And, you know, people have different theories about it. Of course, they're blaming the dimwit that, you know, he came after her or whatever. When he saw her walking on the road, that he came after her and made advances and then killed her when she turned him down. But that whole idea of the unsolved mystery, that's kind of what Mark Frost used as inspiration for the show. Because he thought about that body washing up. And then all of the stories that that murder kind of inspired in the town. And the idea that her ghost still walks along the pond and still inhabits the woods was the inspiration behind Laura Palmer's death in the first okay. place. And so that's something I think that's that's kind of fun. Like, you know, th- that comes out. The death of a young woman is what inspires David Lynch and Mark Frost. Uh, one of the earlier scripts they were working on was a Marilyn Monroe biopic implicating the Kennedys in her death. And one thing I forgot about the pilot, and you probably just saw, was that Agent Cooper's talking to Diane, and he's like, I had a dream about, I don't know if he says he has a dream, or he's got an interest in Marilyn Monroe and the involvement in the Kennedys in her death. And he mentions that right in the pilot, and I thought that was kind of neat. So I, I thought it was super fun that, number one, a ghost story is what inspired Mark Frost. Um to, to bring that up, the idea of the girl washing up on the shore. And in the first episode, that I mean, that's the, the first couple seconds. You see Pete, who's portrayed by a guy named Jack Nance. We'll talk more about him because he dies mysteriously a few years after Twin Peaks. But um, Pete uh, finds Laura's body. And I think that's, he says like, she's dead, all wrapped up. Plastic. <laughs> wrapped in plastic. plastic. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny was that also, as I'm rewatching the episode, I see Pete, and I always thought of him as a super old guy. You know, like he looks like in his 60s or whatever. He's only 40, like 47 or 48 when they shoot Twin Peaks. And I was like, oh, man. when I thought about today, I'm like, that's only seven years older than me. Oh, my God, I'm only seven years from being Pete from Twin Peaks. Kind of, <laughs> that was my own kind of horror story. I'm like, He looks way older, though. He does. I'm just like, holy crap, like that. Pete's only 47. Um but so the guy that plays uh, Pete, actually, he plays the uh, father in Eraserhead. So he, know, oh. he knows David Lynch from Eraserhead cool. and the mm-hmm. 1970s in Los Angeles when they worked on that film for like five years. So I thought that was, uh, that was really fun. And I, I forgot that Pete was in Eraserhead because he looks so different with the crazy hair and stuff than to being an old guy with a mustache uh, in the TV show. 
Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. So he finds her and then they bring in Agent Cooper and they start looking for the bodies or for the uh, for the murderer and that kicks off the main mystery. But when they Now you've made it to the dream sequence in episode 3, right? Yes. Okay. Well, that's when you kind of discover like who the killer is. Right, cuz she whispers it to him. Right. Right? But but also, I mean, basically, the guy with the long hair admits it, Bob. Uh-huh, right. But Bob is not a person, Uh-oh. right? Bob's a demon. And it's... It, Spoiler. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. So Bob's a demon, but that's... Okay. But the whole thing is, is that David Lynch kind of... The way that he works is he, he says it's intuitive, like he works on, on dream logic. So he sees something that interests him and then he'll change the whole show around it. Oh, so what, cool. when they started writing, they didn't know who was going to kill Laura. Oh, wow. Right? They had no idea who's killing Laura Palmer. And even when they're filming it. That's so hard to imagine. Well, they assumed it was going to be a pilot and they'd figure it out later. Right. But I mean, even, you know, you would think you'd have the story arc at least drafted out or some right. kind of a plan you know you would well and that's why when they get to the second season things fall apart oh <laughs> and but like so bob's a set dresser like bob's working on the show as a set dresser oh so he's not an actor no he's not an actor and david lynch like sees him reflected in a certain scene he sees him in, his, in the mirror and in, in like and they're looking at the dailies like oh no the guy's name was frank silva they're like oh frank you know, Frank's reflected, so we can't use that. And he's like, oh, my, he gets soup. He's like, oh, my God, like, that's perfect. Eureka. Right. He's like this crazy looking guy in the thing. <laughs> Let's find a scene for him. And he asks, he's like, hey, Frank, do you, do you act? And, of course, everybody, uh, when they're asked by the director of the show, like, do you act? He's like, you. The default answer. Yeah, you bet I act. And so. I do now. Right. Bob gets introduced as a scary mystery character and he really does a great job of you know talking of 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 conveying this presence this evil presence (laughs) and the same thing happened with if you also notice in that dream sequence the guy with one arm named mike yes okay so there was a show in the 60s called the fugitive that they remade with harrison ford yeah and in the original tv show the guy that frames the fugitive has one arm and so the tv show is about the fugitive looking for the one-armed man for five years until he eventually finds Ah. him and so the idea of having a one-armed man in the show was just a little it was supposed to be a little like hat tip to the fugitive and that that hawk sees the one-armed man in the hospital and is like that's weird and that was just supposed to be like a one-off kind of joke. Yeah. But then David Lynch got so intrigued by the idea of the one-armed man that he writes this guy into the plot, too. Uh. So Bob and Mike, um, who are right, Bob, which is funny because my name is Robert Michael. So I'm like, yep. <laughs> I'm like Bob and Mike. Into and it. I'm right there. Um, but Bob and Mike, the, the two main like demon characters in Twin Peaks who eventually become a huge part of the narrative are based on just people that David Lynch was inspired by in the story. Wow. 
And this goes into one of the big uh, influences of the show is these demonic characters and that they possess people. Mm. Okay? And so, I mean, demonic possession is a huge part of the show because Bob possesses various characters at points in the show. And you never really see Bob in, in real life. You just see him as he's possessing characters. Okay. And the idea is that Mike used to be partners with Bob and they used to live above a convenience store that I don't know why they put that in there. Like we used to live above what you call a convenience store. (laughs) And the best part is in the movie, like they're hanging out in that apartment above the convenience store with David Bowie. No way. Yeah, because David Bowie's in the movie as this Agent Jeffries. That's awesome. And if we talked about this in the David Bowie episode, but David Bowie's a ghost in Fire Walk With Me. And he actually comes from this meeting with Bob and Mike. And it's funny because like these demons live above a convenience store and (laughs) Mike eventually decides to change his ways, but he's got to get rid of this tattoo that he has that connects him to Bob. Oh, okay. So he cuts his arm off. Yeah. And eventually you see his arm in this place called the Red Room. All right. So the first thing, I mean, demonic possession. And this is this is interesting to me, too, because Bob doesn't just possess anybody. Like, Bob possesses people who are, well, doing bad things, you know? So it almost makes me feel like, you know, that Twin Peaks is taking this very conservative uh, viewpoint because anybody who gets involved in, like, sex and drugs, bad things happen to them. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, Laura Palmer, she's this good girl, but she's also has a cocaine addiction and she's moonlighting as a prostitute. Right. She's got the dark side. Right. Has it has this dark side. And that leads her to be involved with these different people in the town, including the the people eventually kill her. And all of their like drinking and drugging and whoring makes them susceptible to uh, possession by Bob. So. And this isn't much of a spoiler, but you even see this in the new series in that the people who are having sex get offed, you know? So it's kind of, I don't know what, David Lynch, it's funny to see that he's kind of upholding his Eagle Scout 50s ideas in the show <laughs> by having the characters who have sex or the characters who are engaging in these things. Nice. Um, they're the ones. So demonic possession is one of the first things, but it's the idea about where these guys live, where the spirits come from, that goes into some even older, interesting uh, uh, paranormal stuff, including Alastair Crowley. Ooh. All right. Holy moly. Holy moly. Alastair Crowley is back. And I didn't even realize this until we were doing the research, but there's this idea in Twin Peaks that it's near a portal to the other side, Right. And on the other side, there's the Black and White Lodge. And the White Lodge is supposed to be a uh, like a happy place. The White Lodge is a heaven-type place where the good spirits reside and everything. But the Black Lodge is its shadow. Ooh. Okay? And so the, the Black Lodge is like the evil opposite of the White Lodge. Black and white, cowboys and, you know, you know, white-headed cowboys, black-headed cowboys. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's using this very simple thing. But the inspiration behind the lodges comes from this like 1920s book series where this author was writing these, these books that are kind of the precursor to Indiana Jones. 
fun. Yeah, about this guy who's doing adventuring in the in the Far East, and okay. he runs into different magicians from the Black and White Lodges, and the Black and White Lodge are at war with each other. Ooh. Okay, and so I mean, Bob and Mike are from the Black Lodge. That's kind of like okay. that's their area. So they're demons from the Black Lodge that come in, and they you know, and they're here to corrupt people's souls. In fact, in the movie, uh, you find out that what they feed on is human pain and suffering. Aww. And you know, there's even a, a specific word that they made up in the show, uh, Garmonbosia. Oh, Garmonbosia is the word that they want to eat. Like, and it, it's like represented by cream corn. I know. I said the truth. The truth is weird. So human pain and suffering is manifested as cream oh. corn. And that's what wow. the, that's what these demons eat in the Black Lodge. <laughs> Do they get it at the supermarket downstairs? <laughs> no, they, they get it from killing Laura Palmer. But the thing is, is that the White Lodge, well, the guy that wrote these books from the 1920s and 30s, he was a theosophist. And theosophy is this idea that hidden knowledge can lead to enlightenment, occultism. Alistair Crowley talks about the white brotherhood. And it's nothing to do with race. I mean, now you say white brotherhood and people are like, hey, you talking about the KKK? No, no. Um, right. This white brotherhood are these different magicians or people that practice like Alistair Crowley style magic for the betterment of humanity. But so Madame Blavatsky was uh, this woman from the 19th century who she said that she had these teachers from Tibet. And that's another thing they talk about in the show is oh, yeah. Agent Cooper says that he's inspired by the plight of the Tibetan people. Right. Um, but Madame Blavatsky is this author in the 19th century, and she creates this whole school of theosophy where she says she's helping people find this hidden occult knowledge for the betterment of humanity. And the guy that wrote these books is one of her disciples. And what's funny is that it's not just like that particular author. That's what Jack Parsons, whose work in Jet Fuel uh, made the mission to the moon possible. He's also one of the followers of these wow. theosophist philosophy. L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who started Scientology, he's also like a theosophist. Mm. He actually does like a, a particular ritual suggested by Alistair Crowley with L. Ron Hubbard. So Jack Parsons wow. and L. Ron Hubbard work together to do these things. And Jack Parsons is an episode alone all to himself, along with Uncle Alistair, who we'll talk about. But the idea of the White Lodge and the Black Lodge at war with each other, that comes from Alistair Crowley and Madame Blavatsky. So there's a paranormal influence right there. And that's a lot of fun. Another influence is, and this one I kind of knew about, but I completely forgot, D.B. Cooper. Have you heard of D.B. Cooper? I have. D.B. Cooper is the guy that uh, hijacks a plane in the American Northwest in 1971. So D.B. Cooper hijacks a plane and demands a ransom of like $200,000. So they land at a place. He gets the ransom. The plane goes back up. He's got a parachute. He jumps out of the parachute and never seen again. And so it's, an, it's one of these unsolved mysteries of who this D.B. Cooper character was, okay? Well, because of the mystery of that, that's what inspired David Lynch to name the main character, Dale Bartholomew Cooper. Oh, okay. So he's directly influenced by the mysteries of huh. D.B. Cooper to name that's the character cool. Agent Cooper right there. And so that's another one of the weird, like, unsolved mysteries that kind of inspired part of the story. One thing they do talk about a lot in the show, and you haven't gotten this far because it's more about in the second season. Okay. Is they talk about Project Blue Book. And we know that Project Blue Book is the Air Force's 
uh, inquiry into UFOs that started in like 1952 and lasted until like 1970. And in the show, they talk about uh, how it, you know, it was officially disbanded, but they never really disbanded it. And Bobby's father, who's a like major, major Briggs, he was one of the people that worked on Project Blue Book. And he said that he was still working on it. And they were monitoring like deep space, like SETI does, looking for aliens and everything. But they ended up receiving a transmission from the woods near Twin Peaks that says the owls are not what they seem. (laughs) All right. And Oh, that's not creepy at all. Yeah. And uh, the actor, Don S. Davis, that plays Bobby's dad, also played Scully's dad on the X-Files. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's like, wears the same kind of military uniform that they have him in yeah. Twin Peaks. So it's funny. They must have, like, the people at the X-Files are like, we gotta, we gotta bring this guy back. And so they dedicate a new episode of the uh, TV show to him. Like, all the people that have died. Like, so the guy that plays Bob, Frank Silva, he died. So they dedicate an episode to him. They dedicate an episode to the log lady who passed away. Uh-huh. And she's in the new She's in the new show, too. Really? Yeah. And we'll get to her in one second, because she ties into uh, a mysterious death that also happened. So, But Project Blue Book, um, it's implied that the military knows about the White Lodge, the White and Black Lodges. Mm, and, okay. and so Project Blue Book has gone from this, like, just looking for UFOs to this battle between the Black and White Lodges. Hmm. And so that's kind of where that goes. And we're going to talk a lot more about Project Blue Book when our friend Mark O'Connell comes back on the show. Because in in June, he's releasing a biography of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was the guy in charge of Project Blue Book. So cool. Right, which is totally cool. So that becomes a main thing. And it's interesting. The owls are not what they seem. Hmm. And in the show, like the owls are, they're messengers, the owls also seem to sometimes carry the spirits of the demons from the black and white lodges back and forth. And what I like about that is that it ties very well into the book Communion, which we've talked about a ton of times and which also was really popular at the time Twin Peaks came out. Because in Communion, Whitley Strieber sees like this great horned owl and that triggers the memory of being abducted by aliens. Right. And so even in the, you know, if you go to the the Twin Peaks FAQ, and this is all of the Usenet discussions from the years of Twin Peaks discussions they had, like when when the internet was first around and people were just, and people were talking about it. It's got all the references to different points of the show where owls appear mysteriously. You know, there's, there's one episode where like they have a vision of Bob and an owl appears over his face, (laughs) you know? Owls appear suddenly when people appear and get abducted in the show, like an an owl will show up. The log lady talks about her husband dying in a fire, and she says, and I heard an owl. So there's all this relationship between owls and the supernatural and the lodges, and I think that totally connects, and one of the inspirations must have been communion, because... Yeah, that would totally make sense. Right, because it's really popular at the time in pop culture, and owls are the harbinger for some kind of supernatural activity. And that supernatural activity now is related to aliens in Twin Peaks. So they, they kind of they, they bring that all in. And the log lady herself is an interesting character because 
and you've seen enough. You've seen the log lady talk to him, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And she's like, my log says, you know, she'll. She's like, well, why don't you ask it yourself? <laughs> right. And people just act like she's crazy. <laughs> the log lady is portrayed by Catherine Coulson, who was married to the guy who played Pete in the 1970s. And she was also very close to David Lynch because she helped him with a racer head, too. So he brings these people that helped him with his original film when he was, you know, a poor guy just in L.A. trying to, you know, get by. And they were, you know, poor actors. And then he brings them on to his most famous creation, Twin Peaks. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) And the Log Lady features, like, even when they did repeats of Twin Peaks on the Bravo Network, they filmed all new introductions with the Log Lady introducing every episode. (laughs) That's great. And, you know, in the show, it's the idea that the Log Lady's husband was a lumberjack who died in a fire on their wedding night. Before the, you know, before the show even started. And she says, like, her husband met the devil and she heard the sound of an owl. Aww. And that's, that's all really they, they reveal about him. In Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the character played by Jürgen Prochnow, the German actor who got really famous from a movie, Das Boot, the movie about the submarine. Oh, yeah. He plays uh, a character and he's actually in the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. So her husband's soul gets taken. Oh, that's sad. But, you know, she's talking to the log, and I thought, I thought for a long time that was her husband's soul in the log. Okay. And the idea of being reincarnated as a piece of wood, which happens again in the show. Somebody's soul gets trapped in a piece of wood oh, later yeah. in the show. Just the idea of that. That's funny because that comes straight um, even in the Old Testament, which is weird because you don't think of Judaism to, to deal with reincarnation. But... Um, that is something in the Kabbalah, which is like the mystical Judaism, which is the, yeah. the stuff they don't teach in Hebrew school or whatever. But I, I guess Madonna goes to the Kabbalah Center. There's a Kabbalah Center that they talk about all this mystic Judaism. Even King David says, protect my spirit from the sword and my soul from the dogs. And that's the idea that King David is asking God to protect his soul from being reincarnated into a dog. Hmm. And... Um, there's some evidence in the Kabbalah and the, the teachings of some of the Jewish mystics that you can reincarnate all the way down to vegetation. So that one of the prophets says, from, For a stone from the walls will scream and a piece of wood from the tree will cry, is that a human can be reincarnated as a piece of wood. Wow. Okay. So that's where I thought they were going with the log lady and her piece of wood. That her, yeah. their husband was a woodsman and he gets reincarnated as a piece of wood. But her real-life husband, Jack Nance, the guy that played Pete, friend of David Lynch for a long time, he was an alcoholic for a long time, too. And his story is kind of sad because he's an alcoholic through the 80s, and he's got to be a hotel manager to make ends meet and stuff. He gets dropped from shows and everything because he shows up on set drunk. David Lynch gives him a a role in Blue Velvet, and uh, Jack Nance, the the Eraserhead guy, and, and Pete, he talks to the, to the lead bad guy in Blue Velvet is Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper, he um, famously had struggles with drugs and alcohol, and Jack Nance reaches out to Dennis Hopper and says, you got to help me, and Dennis Hopper does. Oh, wow. Jack Nance cleans up his act, stops drinking, gets to do Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks gets canceled, he's still getting some roles, but he meets somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. He meets the the... You remember the show Coach? Oh, yeah. Okay. So Coach had like a dumb little buddy. Played by like... (laughs) I thought he was the big, tall guy. No, he was dumb too. 
Oh, um, okay. But he had like a, like a, I forget what the guy's name was on the show, but he's played by Jerry Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke's okay. brother. Okay. Ah. Dick Van Dyke's brother has a daughter who eventually gets into struggles with drugs and alcohol on her own. And this is kind of, this is sad. So she marries Jack Nance, but she starts using again. And he's like, well, I can't be with you if you're, oh, if you're no. using again. And so he's on set of this movie called Meatballs 4. The, the Meatball series takes place in camps, like in the woods, in camps. I remember those. Yeah. And he's like on set in Northern California. And so his wife is, is using again. He's threatening to leave her. And she says to him, if you hang up the phone, I will kill myself. Oh, no. And he's on the set, and he, and he says, right then, a bolt of lightning strikes the camp where they're shooting the no. movie, and the phone goes out. So when the phone comes back on, he calls like the you know, police department in the neighborhood they're living in and says, you got to please check the house. And they do, and she killed herself. <gasps> that is absolutely horrible. That is a hor- And the thing is, he wasn't going to hang up the phone, but yeah, the, yeah. the lightning struck interfered and because and you know like divine intervention oh. killed his wife so that's a sad story but he doesn't start drinking again for a couple years but then some wow. some reason a couple years later he starts drinking again so this is december of 1996 he shows up to meet his friends for breakfast an actress Catherine case and her fiance screenwriter leo bulgarini they meet at a coffee shop and he says he's got a black eye and he's been drinking a lot and they say well what happened to you and he goes, I told off some kid. I guess I got what I deserved. He said he got in a fight with two guys outside of Winchell's Donut House in, pa- in, in South Pasadena, California. The next morning, he dies. What? And the police say that it probably died of blunt force trauma to the head. Oh, my God. Whatever fight he got into caused so much internal bleeding. Wow. Uh, but the thing is, is they can't. There's no suspects. All he has is the story that he fought with two guys outside of the Winchell's Donuts. They, yeah. they look for the security footage. They look for anything. They put out a, you know, put a, a message, say, if anybody knows anything about this, please let us know. And there's never any suspects. There's never anything happens. This is an unsolved mystery of how Jack Nance, the actor, Unreal. died. And David Lynch finances a, a documentary about his life in 2002, which has probably kind of kept this story alive a little bit. But, you know, that's its own kind of mystery, you know, associated with it. And that's the real-life husband of the log lady. Well, and, and this is something I want to hear from you, because I don't know if you've had a chance to tell this story yet on the show, Wendy. Because uh, the place where the log lady's husband disappears, near the entrance to the Black Lodge, the portal to the other world is uh, named Glastonbury Grove, okay? Okay. And Glastonbury Grove is actually named after a place in the real-life Glastonbury called oh. Glastonbury Tor, and it's supposed to be the, the burial place of King Arthur. It's a big hill in Glastonbury. Cool. And it's been called Insir Avalon, which obviously I didn't say very well, but <laughs> that's Old Welsh for the Isle of Avalon. And it's identified with King Arthur, and um, somebody in like the 12th century says that him and Guinevere's graves are there. One of the people researching the Templars said it is a possible location of the Holy Grail. Mm. And the idea is that um, it's a place which is an entrance to the fairy kingdom. It's a portal to the other world. Oh, okay. So just like 
uh, Glastonbury Grove in Twin Peaks is a portal to the Black Lodge. <laughs> now, there's a whole bunch of different places in mythology that are related to different gateways to hell and stuff like that. And right. there's one in Stull, Kansas. And you've been to that particular gateway to hell, haven't you? I have. In fact, very recently, uh, just in April. And, and what did you see in Stull, Kansas? Well, just went to the cemetery, which is the infamous place that, you know, it's supposed to be one of the seven portals to All right. hell or whatever. Sweet. And uh, actually, it's in a very beautiful area of Kansas. It's just rolling hills and way out in the country. And Satan. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, very small cemetery. And there's like a little chapel there that had been knocked down. So it was just a pile of ruins, basically. But uh, the legend has it that it was behind there that there's some kind of a cement cover that you can open up. And then if you go down the stairs, that's it for you. <laughs> Oh, wow. But there's a bunch of different versions of the story. So some of them say people who go down there lose track of time and they don't come out for years or whatever. And then other stories say that the devil comes out every Halloween at midnight and dances around with recently departed people. So I didn't see anything particularly weird there, but it was kind of a spooky cemetery, I guess, being so far out in the middle of the country and just knowing all those stories and rumors. But apparently the legend yielded large crowds that would show up at Halloween waiting to see the devil Mm. make his appearance. Well, yeah, it's big news. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of kids would go out there and unfortunately a lot of destruction occurred to the cemetery. So that's really sad for the people buried there and their families. Something interesting about the Stull Cemetery that I didn't know until I just looked it up is that Urge Overkill released an EP uh, which features the church and the tombstone from the cemetery in the cover. Right. Which was a cool reference because since I didn't see the actual church Mm -hmm. standing, I mean, it literally was just a pile of rubble. Awesome. And uh, it also, you know, I haven't watched Supernatural. I know people love Supernatural. And so I'm I'm not going to say anything, but I know people love Supernatural. I haven't watched it yet. One of these days I'll go through all 10 seasons. Of it. But the fictional cemetery is the site of the final confrontation of the apocalypse in season five of the television series Supernatural 2. There you go. So, Urge Overkill, Supernatural, The Gateway to Hell in Stell, Kansas. And I just love that idea that um, they they took this idea of the entrance to the fairy world, the entrance to hell, the entrance to the other side. And that also inspired, like, where people go and they enter this black lodge and white lodge who are fighting each other for supremacy of human souls. And uh, that that kind of stuff is in the show. And, you know, besides all the the dream stuff and everything in the show with the paranormal influences, I'd say there's one paranormal influence that you definitely are going to have to know if you're going to watch the new part of the show. Ooh, okay. And what's that? That is the doppelganger. Ah. Okay. So in German, doppelganger, um, well, the translation is double goer. So, uh, uh, but it's the idea that out there, there's another version of you. That's a terrifying thought. And and an interesting thing is like a lot of people think of doppelgangers are just lookalikes, you know? Right. Yeah. But that's kind of the the current use of the word. But the original idea behind doppelganger and the long history of these spirit doubles is that if you see a version of yourself out there, well, that means that's bad news. That's bad luck. Okay. So kind of like seeing a future, like a time traveler version of you. Yeah. So if you see a doppelganger, because the idea is, is that if you're the good version, then that's the evil version out there. 
running around causing trouble. Like, yeah. Do they have a goatee is the question. Well, you, if they're an evil version of Mr. Spock, they definitely have a goatee. But that evil twin idea, there's even a, uh, even a story, a legend, that Abraham Lincoln saw a doppelganger in the mirror in 1860. And he said that nearly at full length, but my face had two separate and distinct images. One was a little paler, five shades paler than the other. So Mary Todd, who we know was kind of, you know, she had her own issues. Oh, yeah. Uh, His wife was said to be very worried and told Lincoln she believed that the paleness of half of the dual image was a bad omen, which meant that he would serve his first full term, but not would not live to finish the second. Oh. So, you know, even in 1860, they think of the story, the idea of seeing a doppelganger of that's that is it has only to portend disaster and doom for you. And obviously uh, it did for Abraham Lincoln because he didn't make it to the second term. Hmm. You know, he didn't. Uh, he, he was a big theater fan. He shouldn't have been. Um, mm. But that idea in Twin Peaks, that's the doppelganger appears a lot. Okay. So there's a whole thing where there's a version of you that lives in the Black Lodge. And so you don't want the version of you that lives in the Black Lodge out. That's so, so creepy. Right. <laughs> that concept. And and so, yeah, in the show, um, there's, a, there's a whole thing. That's a big part of the new one is the idea okay. that, of the doppelganger out there. And there's that long tradition of if you see someone like you, it only means – who looks just like you, it only, it only means bad things. And I know there's, there's scientific reasons uh, that people can look like you. And somebody's even done a um, – an art project where they've taken like a, over a thousand pictures of people that look just like each other that aren't related or from other sides of the world and stuff. And uh, Wendy, we saw your doppelganger in a picture frame once. That's right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't Ben buy that picture frame and give it to you? Cause he thought it looked so much like he told me about it. And then I went to the store and I bought it. Oh, you bought I was it. Okay. So freaked out that I saw, cause you know, sometimes other people say, Oh, I saw someone who looked like you. Right. But when you see a picture and you're like, I don't remember posing for that picture. Is that me? Oh. But you know, it isn't. So. You, you know, what's, that was scary. what's funny about the doppelganger thing real quick, and this is a personal story of mine, and you know what? I just thought of this story for the first time in 20 years. So this ha- happened to me in high school. I was at a school dance, and there was a guy who was a, a date of, of a girl I knew at the school dance, and he comes up to me and goes, when did you get out? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, uh, when did you get out of Wales? And so where I grew up, Wales was the school for bad kids. Oh, okay. And so he's like, you know, he's like, because I didn't think you were, I thought you were going to be in Wales for a long time. And I'm like, like, I don't know who, I don't know who you are. um, You know, I don't know what you want. And he's just like, come on, man. And I'm like, no. And this guy really thought that I was his friend from the bad guys, like the the, the school that the that the bad kids went to, and I just thought, I thought, and I guess I hadn't thought about this story till now. But I have an evil, I have an evil doppelganger of my oh, own man. out there. Gotta watch out for him. Yes, but the doppelgangers come from the Black Lodge, and uh, well, that's the idea that they can't nice. get out. And I was going to say one more thing about that Black Lodge and White Lodge. There's a waiting room like in between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. And that's where a lot of the dreams of the show take place. There's a giant that appears there. In the sh- He's just known as the giant in the show. 
Um, I met him at Gen Con in the 1990s. He was totally cool. He also play he also plays Lurch in like the new Adams awesome. with the Adams Family movies that were made in the 90s. He also played Lurch. But that waiting room is where like time doesn't exist and regular physics don't exist. Mm-hmm. And the people that pass through they have to pass through the waiting room, and even the most brave people have to pass through the Black Lodge with perfect courage in order to get to the White Lodge to get their eventual, you know, reward for being good in this life. So that idea of the Red Room and the Black Lodge and everything, it's very, very purgatory yeah. uh, in, in that. And so in the Red Room is where Cooper meets the arm of Mike, except the arm of Mike is really a, a little person. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So you see the guy that's dancing around. Represented by. Right, is represented by. And and he's dancing around. And how they got that surreal effect of the voice is they recorded them talking backwards, and then they play it forwards, and then they lip sync to them playing it forwards. So that's how they got that surreal effect of the voice. And the little guy dances around, Michael J. Anderson, who eventually would star in a show called Carnival. Uh, That was an HBO, and that was another, like, good versus evil kind of show very influenced by Twin Peaks but he's a main character on Carnival and eventually he has some kind of falling out with David Lynch and on his Facebook page on Michael J. Anderson's Facebook page he says that David Lynch had his best friend murdered oh my god that he had a incestuous relationship with his daughter um yeah and like he says this like and he's like and he blackmailed the daughter for years never to talk about it and everything and so let's just say that he's not in the new he's not in the new show yeah that's really right whatever sicko falling out he had with david lynch i mean he really went after the jugular uh Mm. and in a facebook post too like not like a it was like like not an interview or something. It was uh, just like a like drunk posting on Facebook. So anyway, watch what you guys post on Facebook because it costs you your job. There's a couple more paranormal things, but I, I think we've covered really the main ones at Twin Peaks. And there's a couple other really great stories. Um, we haven't even talked about Audrey Horn or Catherine Martell. Uh, we haven't talked about what happens to Josie Packard. Like there's a million more things on Twin Peaks. And I think we're going to have to, once we get more into the show maybe, and once you catch up, we can do a follow-up. Probably also to see what people's reactions to the whole 18 hours are. Because the first four hours go full boat supernatural. So mm-hmm. I think if you guys like the supernatural aspect of the show, I think the... Um, but, it, I mean, it's full on weird. Like, the thing is, in 1990, David Lynch had to restrain some of that because he had a network to police. And he's had 27 years of people think telling him he's the best. And he hasn't even, he hasn't even made a movie in 10 years. Like, I think, uh. I think the last thing he directed was uh, the video for Came Back Haunted by Nine Inch Nails. So he hasn't even directed a movie in 10 years. And now he's come back with 18 hours of this show. He did it all himself. Him and Mark Frost wrote it. And like Showtime gave them no restrictions whatsoever. That's awesome. So, well, it'll be fun to see. And I'm excited to catch up, you know, yes. get through the original series and yeah. then watch it now. Yeah. And I think we even made it through pretty well without spoiling a lot of it for you. I didn't, I didn't realize there was so yeah, much thanks. to talk about without spoiling it. Um, but there I know, is. I was really compelled to watch the whole thing, but obviously I, ran, I did not have time this weekend. You didn't have time to binge like I did when, I, when I'm like, give me all the stuff. But anyway, so you guys, I hope you enjoyed the, the new episodes, but hopefully this gave you a little bit of idea of some of the cool inspiration that Twin Peaks took from the paranormal. And of course, Twin Peaks had a huge impact on pop culture. Even Anthrax, the band Anthrax, 
has a song called the has a song called the Black Lodge that they did with uh, Angelo Badlamenti, who wrote the boom, you know the the very mm-hmm. mem- memorable music for Twin Peaks. So cool. And doesn't our friend Mark Marmon have a Twin Peaks reference in one of his songs? Yeah, um, he's got a song called "Slow the Guillotine" from his uh, album Double Silhouette. It opens up with the lyric. With the innocence of Laura Palmer, she said I made her feel like Dorothy Parker. People said she slept around. I guess that's what I thought. I needed after you. Well, it certainly was true about Laura Palmer. Yeah. But that's awesome. And so, like, we see the Twin Peaks even uh, influenced also, even on our own song, Morgan Le Fay, which we used for our episode on the fairies. We talked about, uh, talked about the fairies. So... With uh, Morgan Le Fay, there's a line in there that says, no one is innocent when no one is to blame. And so the back of my Twin Peaks t-shirt from the movie Fire Walk With Me said, in a town like Twin Peaks, no one is innocent. That was the tagline from the movie. And so that idea that stuck with me when we were working on that song was that, right, when no one's, like, who really is to blame for, and even Bobby has a speech, Bobby, Laura's boyfriend, has a speech about how the whole town was somewhat complicit in her murder because of all the the seedy underbelly of everybody there you know the the sickness of the the corruption of the town underneath its idyllic existence but speaking of music this week we decided to go with a little bit of a a a different kind of song took some of angelo bad say influence and then turned it into like a twin peaks montage like a homage uh, to the music of Angelo Badlamenti with a couple of our favorite quotes from the TV show. And here's a little tribute. This is, excuse me, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. Thy wife leaves me. Thy wife leaves me. 
think you'd be afraid to go to sleep. for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. So we don't just love Twin Peaks here. No. There's other things we love and there's other people we love. And right, besides David Lynch, our patrons are the greatest people in our lives. <laughs> and so to the people part of our Patreon community, we want to thank you every week for supporting the songs, the podcasts, the blog post, the newsletter. If you guys aren't on the newsletter yet, othersidepodcast.com slash subscribe. We'll send you paranormal so- uh, paranormal stories every week and a cool paranormal song that ties in to those stories we, we look at every week. And one of our favorite Patreons is... Mr. Ned, Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned, thank you very much for all the support. He's at the Patreon level where we make sure he gets a shout out in every single episode. And a quick reminder that this week is our monthly Patreon hangout. Oh, yeah. Live on Google+. Plus. So that's going to happen on Thursday, May 25th at 7 p.m. Central Time. And we hope that you can all join us because we have a good time sharing paranormal stories and getting to know you all a little better. So. Absolutely. Hanging out with the patrons is one of our favorite things, uh, especially mm. discussing this. And I hope that a couple of our patrons have watched some episodes of Twin Peaks yeah. so we can talk about this week because I'm still trying to process all the crazy crap that I just watched uh, over the past couple of days. And you'll be able to find all this, links to everything here, othersidepodcast.com slash 145. See you soon. I have an evil doppelganger of my own out there.